Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. It's our text today. It's our only text today. I was going to go through verse 29, but I realized that that would be a daunting task that you guys wouldn't be up to because it would mean that we would be here for much longer than you wanted to be. So instead of doing that, I thought, we'll just cover one verse today and we'll come back next week for the subsequent verses or verse. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. So we're going through the book of Colossians, the short book, the short letter, only three chapters. Only four chapters, I mean. But it's a powerful little book. And as with all of the Bible, it's worth taking the time to see what God inspired in his word that should inspire us and inform us and grow us to be more conformed to the image of Christ. By the way, happy Mother's Day uh, to all the mothers today. There has been much suffering, many afflictions that have brought us to the place in his story that we find ourselves today. I mean, if you were just to think about throughout history what it took for each of you to be in this room today, I mean, not like what happened last week or last month or last year or even just in your life. I'm talking about through history. For us to be sitting here in this room in a free nation with all the blessings, even though our AC is not working the way it's supposed to work, it's a little stuffy in here. I'm rejoicing because we even have an air conditioner and it's working partially because it'd be a much hotter in here if it weren't. So think about all that took for us to get here. And there was no doubt suffering and affliction along the way to bring us to this point. There's also been much joy and much rejoicing, yes, even in the midst of the suffering and the affliction. And we can be tempted to believe that life is more about the suffering and the affliction than it is about the joy and the rejoicing, but it's not. That is the lie the enemy wants you to believe in order to steal your joy. Why would the enemy want to steal your joy? Anybody know? Because the joy of the Lord is your strength. And if the enemy can steal your joy, he has stolen your strength. And he knows that, even if you don't. So don't let the enemy steal your joy. Not even in your suffering. Stay strong and stay joyful. Colossians 1.24, one verse. I just read it. Let me read it again. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. And fill up in my flesh that which is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for your word, God. We ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, Lord, renew our minds, transform us and conform us to Christ, that we would be less and less conformed to this world, 
that we would be a people that would prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God, which is Christ in us, the hope of glory. Father, we thank you for your grace, your amazing grace. In Jesus' name, amen. We are to rejoice in sufferings. Suffering is part of overcoming. We all like overcoming, but think about that term. Think about that word, overcoming. The very word implies that we've overcome something. And more than likely, it involves some type of challenge, very likely some type of affliction, or even suffering. We love the overcoming part, but we don't like the suffering part. And we can live in denial and believe that suffering is not part of life, but we all know that's not true. Suffering is absolutely a part of life. So what do we do with it? Well, the Bible says here's what we do with it. We rejoice in the midst of it. Paul declares, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you. Sufferings here, this word sufferings, these are pain and hardship and misfortune, and calamity, and evil that we suffer in this world. And specifically here, Paul is talking about sufferings that have to do with the cause of Christ and the preaching of the gospel. Paul rejoiced in his suffering on behalf of the church and for the sake of the gospel. In his, in his letter to the Philippians, the apostle Paul exhorts with these words, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always, and for emphasis, let me say this again. Again, I say rejoice. This is a clear exhortation that we are to be always rejoicing in the Lord, even in our sufferings. Doing this is easier said than done. I do realize this, as we all do. And this is why the Lord told the Apostle Paul in his affliction that his grace is sufficient. So in the midst of Paul's suffering, when, God, when he's praying and asking God to remove the suffering from him, Jesus reminds Paul that his grace is sufficient in the midst of our suffering. So if we have nothing else to rejoice for in our suffering... We rejoice because God's grace is sufficient, not just in suffering, but in all things. God commands our rejoicing for our good, and he supplies the needed grace for us to walk in it. We are to rejoice in him always, knowing that his joy in us and our joy in him is our strength. It was for joy that Jesus endured and overcame the suffering and the shame of the cross. Listen to the words of the writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The salvation of Christ's bride, that's us, the church, was the joy that was set before him as he endured the suffering and the shame of the cross. In other words, you 
are his joy. His joy in you and your joy in him is to fill you and strengthen you in all things, especially in your sufferings. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's not your suffering that is to be joyful. It is you in the midst of your suffering that is to be joyful. To rejoice in your suffering is not the same as rejoicing for your suffering. I'm not advocating you rejoice for your suffering. I'm, I'm advocating, and the Bible is commanding us to rejoice in the midst of our suffering. But suffering for the cause of Christ is a reason to rejoice. To rejoice in your suffering is not the same as rejoicing for, and the focus of your rejoicing in the midst of your suffering is the Lord. It also means, as in the case of Paul, suffering for the cause of the gospel, the reason for your suffering can be a reason to rejoice. So it's kind of like the bicycle, you know, it's a very simple example of trying to help our understanding our children understand, you know, instead of just being sad, something bad happened to you, be thankful, rejoice, you have a bike that you actually can fall off of. We all understand that. And Paul is understanding that the suffering that, that came to him as a result of the gospel, he rejoiced in that suffering, not because he enjoyed suffering, but because he enjoyed and rejoiced in the gospel, because he saw the salvation of the gospel. He saw the power of the gospel. And whatever suffering and whatever afflictions we can be afflicted with in this life, they do not compare to the power and the life of the gospel. Paul was suffering for the sake of the church and the gospel. Suffering for the cause of Christ is reason to rejoice it means the gospel has gone forth and is convicting the hearts of men. Man's conviction of sin is evidenced by man's rebellion against the gospel. Listen, if you ever want to wonder whether men are hearing the gospel, when you see their rebellion as a result of it, when you see their anger as a result of it, you can know that they're hearing it. And that is reason to rejoice. It means the gospel is going forth and the gospel is being heard, even if it's falling on hard hearts. Man's conviction of sin is evidenced by man's rebellion against the gospel. For where sin abounds, grace does abound even more. And thus we should see rebellious hearts as an indicator that receptive hearts are also present. And for this we rejoice. Jesus promised you would have tribulation or suffering in this world. And with that promise of tribulation is the promise of peace. This is in John chapter 16, verse 33. Jesus said, these things I've spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus reminds us to be of good cheer, or we could say it like this, to rejoice in our sufferings, for he has overcome the world. Suffering is part of overcoming. 
Jesus suffered and died, but in his suffering death, he overcame the world. He overcame sin. He overcame death. Jesus suffered and died, but in his suffering death, he overcame the world. He is risen. He has conquered sin. He has conquered death, and he has overcome the world. By grace, through faith in Christ, you have been raised up in his life. And that means in the midst of your tribulation and your suffering, whatever the degree, you can be assured that Jesus has overcome the world and in Christ, so have you. I want you to know this. I want you to remember this. That in the midst of your tribulation, in the midst of whatever suffering or affliction you may experience in this life, in this world, be of good cheer because Jesus has overcome the world. And if you are in Christ, then you too have overcome the world in Him. And that is good news. You have the assurance that at all times, even in suffering, you overcome, and God's love never fails. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 37. Paul goes through in the preceding verses, and he gives a whole litany of things that cannot separate us from the love of God. And then he drills down even deeper in verse 37. He says, yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is good news. That is the assurance God gives us. That even in the midst of suffering, God's love never fails. In his love through Jesus Christ, he loves you and he has caused you to overcome. And for that, we are to rejoice. Christ's afflictions for us are complete. But our afflictions for Christ continue. Paul writes this, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. We can read this and misunderstand what Paul is saying here. This word affliction is not the same as the word suffering. So we have sufferings and we have afflictions. The word affliction speaks of pressure. It's what it means, pressure, oppressing, oppressing together. If you want to think about it, falling off your bike and skinning your knee is suffering. But having your bike stolen because there are thieves in the world is being afflicted. You're not hurt physically like you were when you fell off your bike and skinned your knee, but you're hurt, you're afflicted, you're feeling pressed in the pressure because I don't have my bike anymore. Affliction, pressure, the pressing or the pressing together, these are the troubles and the distress that come to us in life. 
for the sake of the gospel or just because we live in a fallen world. Afflictions involve suffering, but not in the same external or physically painful way that suffering implies. So what is Paul referring to in filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ? Well, I can tell you what he's not referring to. He is not indicating that there was something lacking in the atoning work of Christ on the cross. The afflictions of Christ for the sin and the redemption of his people are complete. The work of Christ on the cross is finished. His suffering and death are finished. There is nothing to be added to the finished work of Christ in the cross. So what is Paul referring to in filling up in his flesh the afflictions Lacking in Christ. Paul is referring to his own afflictions in filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. This filling up in the flesh is not Paul trying to earn or gain merit with Christ. Rather, it is to know and to experience the fellowship of his sufferings in carrying out the command of Christ to preach the gospel and to make Christ known and to make disciples. Paul carried the heavy burden, the afflictions associated with the gospel. He carried them gladly. He carried them with a grateful heart for being joined together with Christ for having the very privilege of proclaiming the gospel and doing the work of the gospel. And so should we gladly receive and carry that burden. Paul is not seeking out suffering or afflictions, but he accepted and even welcomed them as the unavoidable consequence of preaching the gospel in a world hostile to it. It is the same world we live in today. If you think the world was less hostile to the gospel in Paul's day, you're wrong. If you think the world today is more hostile to the gospel than it was in Paul's day, you're wrong. Men are born in sin. They're born totally depraved. It didn't matter if they were born 2,000 years ago or two minutes ago. They're born in the same condition, and the only hope of getting out of that condition is being born again. So what we're facing today is not worse, it's not harder, it's not more intense than it ever was before. We're still dealing with sin and fallen man. And the solution is still the same today. No, doesn't matter that we've got computers and phones and in technology, we're still dealing with the same sin, and there is the same solution for sin today as it was in Paul's day, and that solution is Christ and his atoning work in the cross. Paul is not seeking suffering. He's accepting it. He understands it's unavoidable when we preach Christ in a hostile world. Paul understood any sufferings or afflictions for the gospel were an indication of its success in touching men's hearts. The gospel preached broke some men's heart to salvation. 
the gospel preached hardens other men's hearts to greater damnation. But one way or the other, the gospel works. It's powerful to either save or to confirm the condition of men in their sin. Now, we don't stop preaching the gospel because hearing the gospel is not a one and done. I don't know how many times you heard the gospel before you were saved. You might not ever even remember hearing the gospel. You might just remember, I've been saved, I've trusted Christ all my life. Praise God for that. We want more of those testimonies and less of the other ones like my own. That's why we baptize these babies and we charge these parents and the church to raise up these children in the fear and the nurture of the Lord because if we do our job right, these babies will never remember a day when they did not trust in Christ. That's not a bad thing. That's the preferred thing because there's coming a day on this earth when it's made new and sin is no more where we're not going to rejoice in those days when we didn't know Christ. We will live in eternity and in and all of that will fade away. And we will only know Christ and his glory. And even if we can't remember not trusting in Christ, we will know that we are saved by Christ. Because Christ is other than who we are and what we are. And he always will be. Paul's afflictions for the gospel and the cause of Christ allowed him to identify and share in the sufferings of Christ. Listen to Paul express his desires in Philippians 3.10. That I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. Paul also understood that as he filled up in his flesh the afflictions of Christ, there was a corresponding consolation in Christ that he was gaining and filling up. 2 Corinthians 1.5 For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds through Christ. Paul again contrasts the afflictions of this life with the glory they produce, calling those afflictions momentary and light and reminding us that our afflictions are actually working for us. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more and eternal, a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul's not minimizing affliction. He's comparing it contrasting it with the glory of eternity. Whatever affliction and suffering we're going to suffer and be afflicted with, we're going to do it on this earth, in these flesh and blood bodies still held by sin. These bodies are going to go one day and turn into glorified bodies. This fallen earth, this fallen creation is going to be made new one day and the curse and sin and death will be no more. And that will be the eternal condition. That's why Paul calls our affliction momentary. Because as long as we might live in these bodies on this earth, it is at best momentary, and that's too long compared to eternity. 
In that context, listen again to the words of the Apostle Paul. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. Paul rejoiced in his suffering and filled up in his flesh what was lacking in the afflictions of Christ. He rejoiced in those afflictions knowing that they must come and knowing that they are working for him and for the church a far greater glory. Paul refers to what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And this word translated lacking means a deficiency or a deficit. That which is lacking or coming behind. Think poverty. Think deficiency. There was nothing lacking in the afflictions of Christ on the cross. His work there is finished. These are afflictions that have not yet been filled up. And Paul is speaking of those afflictions that must come as a result of preaching the gospel and fulfilling God's word. In Vincent's word studies, I want to quote him because I like what he said about this. That which is lacking of the afflictions of Christ signifies that portion of Christ's ministerial sufferings which has not endured by him, which was not endured by him in person, but is endured in the suffering of Christians in all generations in carrying out Christ's work. Christ knew that he would fill up in his flesh afflictions. Christ, I mean, Paul knew that he would fill up in his flesh afflictions. And Paul knew that those coming after him would continue to fill up in their flesh afflictions until that day came that Jesus would finally say, that's it. No more sin, no more death, no more afflictions. That day has not come yet. So guess what? We are still filling up in our flesh the afflictions lacking in Christ. Paul knew from experience that Christ himself endured suffering and affliction with his church. He no doubt remembered the words that Christ spoke to him on the road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Was the question Jesus asked Paul. And there is no doubt that Christ knows the affliction of his body. There is no doubt that Christ knows your affliction today. And still he commands us to rejoice, for he has overcome the world. Life in this world comes with tribulation because the world is fallen. And in Christ we still live in the world even though we are no longer of the world. In our day and in our time, those who choose to live godly in Christ will suffer affliction. This is a new phenomenon for us today in America, perhaps, but it is not new for the church in her long history. And Paul reminded his young disciple and pastor Timothy of this, 2 Timothy 3.12. Paul writes, yes, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And as hard as the church may try to escape that reality, it will not be escaped. And especially in the day and the age we are living in now, when God is making sure that we see the fruit of righteousness, 
the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit that comes from the works of the flesh, the fruit of unrighteousness. And what was all called the same thing is now being seen for what it is. It is not. There is a separation coming. Afflictions will come to all who desire to live godly in Christ. And this is especially true for those who purpose to make Christ's name known to a world that hates him. The world in its sin and death and depravity cannot know Christ. The problem is not a lack of knowledge. Yes, God's people perish because of a lack of knowledge. But the problem of sin in the world is not because men don't know. The problem with sin in the world, according to Romans chapter 1, and this is the truth, is because men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. It's not that they simply don't know. They are willfully, willingly, in unrighteousness, suppressing the truth. That's what the Scripture teaches us. And so it will never know Christ except by the power of the gospel. That is why Christ commands us to go and to make disciples, so that the world will know the only hope and the only Savior, Jesus Christ. As we go in His commission to make disciples, we know that we will be filling up in our flesh, as is all the church through all the ages, what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. And our afflictions will continue until the day when Jesus Christ puts his final enemy underfoot and death itself will die. And that day in the new creation, when sin and death and pain and sorrow are no more, affliction will be no more. And we shall live in his presence in fullness of joy with pleasures and peace forevermore. That is the word of the Lord. That is what God tells us in Psalm 16, in his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. Our afflictions will continue until that day that they are no more. And until that day, what are we to do? Well, we are to rejoice, but we are also to live and work and pray for his kingdom to come. His will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are to do this for the sake of his body, the church, present now in the earth. And for the generations to come that are not present yet. Even the generations in this room, all of them represented here. From the oldest to the youngest. Until Jesus returns to this earth finally puts away his last enemy. We are to live and die for the sake of his body, the church. That is for his glory. These sufferings and these afflictions are for the sake of his body, the church. That's what Paul said. All that Paul did was for the sake of Christ's body, the church. Paul did not distinguish between... I want you to hear me, church. Paul did not distinguish between living and working and suffering for the sake of the church and living and working and suffering for the sake of Christ. They're not two different things. Paul saw them as one and the same. Christ and his body are one. He is the head of his bride, 
the church. For Paul to suffer for the church and to fill up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ, for Paul, he was doing so for the glory of Christ. The same is true for us today. What we do for the church personally and corporately, we do for the glory of Christ who is the head of his body, the church. This is why you cannot separate Christ from his church, the bridegroom from his bride, the head from his body, the bone from his bone, and the flesh from his flesh. We are joined as one in Christ. This is the relationship of union we have with Christ, and it cannot be separated. To love Christ but not love his church is a lie. You cannot love Christ and not love his church. And if you do, you do not love Christ, even though you may think you do. You don't. Just as Paul says, you can't love God and hate your brother. If you hate your brother, the love of God is not in you. If you hate the church, the love of Christ is not in you. The church is the bride of Christ. And I promise you, Jesus loves his bride. We are called to love what Christ loves, and we're called to hate what Christ hates. Christ loved his church so much, he became sin for it and died for it to save her and to make her one with him for all eternity. Christ suffered for the sake of his body, the church, and we are called to do the same when necessary and to be rejoicing in all things, yes, even in our suffering in the Lord. Let me read my verse again here, Colossians 1, 24. I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. This was Paul's joy. This was Paul's life's work for the sake of his body, which is the church. This is to be our joy. This is to be our life's work in the midst of whatever vocation the Lord may call you into and gift you to do. You understand? You may be a carpenter or a clerk, or God may call you to be a plumber or even a pastor. But whatever your vocation, God has called you in Christ to a life's work of building his kingdom. You are to build today knowing that we build for the generations coming after us. The work you do today matters because it will be a work that will last past you. This is true for what you do and also true for what you don't do. There are consequences to both. Your life's work for the kingdom will no doubt involve suffering for many reasons. Just the reality of death will accomplish that. It will involve afflictions, pressure, and distress. Know this, that all of the suffering and all the afflictions you experience in your life's daily work for his kingdom will be eclipsed by the greater, more eternal weight of glory that is working for you in all of those. All of your life's work, all you are called to be and do for his name's sake and for his kingdom, even all the mindless, mundane, daily stuff, it is for the sake of his body, which is the church, 
It is all for his glory, in other words. Our devotion to Christ, our kingdom work for his glory is practically speaking for the sake of his body, his life's presence in the earth. That's who we are. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ lives in you. We are his living presence in the earth today. For the sake of his body, his life's presence in the earth, which is his church, we must never separate Christ into one sphere and his church into another. Many today make that separation by professing love for Christ but disdain for his church. And this is sinful. This is not, Christ is not separated from his body. Christ is not separated from his church. He is one with her. If you are in Christ, you are part of his body. You are part of his church. And that means he is one with you. And he made you one with him by grace. That's his work, not yours, not mine. He made you one with him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we come to this table every week to proclaim that work, to remember that work, that Christ died on the cross, that Christ shed his blood so that our sins could be taken away, so that we could be called the body of Christ, members of his bone and of his flesh, that we could be joined to him and become one to him in union and be called the very bride of the Lamb of God. This is the relationship we have with God in Christ. We are the bride of Christ. We are the church. And that was made possible for Christ's body on the cross and Christ's blood shed from that cross to make us one with him. So prepare yourselves to come to the table to declare his body and to declare his blood and to rejoice in his death even until he comes again. For in rejoicing in his death, we proclaim his life. For Christ is very much alive, and he will very much return to this earth one day. He is ruling and reigning now, but he will come, and we will see him face to face in that day. And in that day, we won't have to rejoice in afflictions and sufferings any longer, For they will be no more. But until then, we have reason to rejoice. Yes, even in the midst of our suffering and our affliction. And because of Christ, we can and we do, knowing that we have overcome. Christian, welcome to the table. In your charge today, of course, I want to remind you that we are called to rejoice always in the Lord, in all of life, and in all the life of the church both bitter and sweet, and life does involve both. We're called to joyfully assemble together to worship and pray and confess and rejoice in His grace. We've done that today. To hear the word preached together, to come to the table together, to give thanks together. We've done that today. To receive our commission together, we're doing that right now. 
and to go out together into the world to be salt and light and see those in death and darkness raised up to life and light. That's what we're to do when we leave here each week. It's what we're to do as we go out every day doing whatever it is we do every day. This is your true life's work. Whatever your tent-making vocation may happen to be, and all you do, do all as unto the Lord. Do all to His glory. Do all knowing that your life and your work make a difference today and for the generations. And this is true for all you do as well as all you fail to do to all of us. Be a doer of the work. Be a doer of the word. For the sake of His body, which is the church, for this is for His glory. Remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Don't let the enemy steal your joy. Don't let him steal your strength. Not even in your suffering. Not even in your afflictions. Stay strong and stay joyful. Amen? Amen. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen.